Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Luke and I get to serve as one of the ministers here. Uh, Three quick things for you. The first and most important thing is this. It's that God's desire for you and our desire for you is for you to become fully alive in his son Jesus. And that means three things. It means that God made you for life with Jesus in community and on mission. With Jesus in community, on mission. And one of the ways that we wanna help you discover the life that God made you for is through a thing called Rooted. We do Rooted a lot. Hundreds of us have been through Rooted. Rooted is a 10-week experience where you show up here on Sunday evenings at the church for a couple of hours. You meet with a, an, a small group of people there and you walk through some material together about, hey, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Real basic 101 stuff gives us some tools to take home and implement in your everyday life to help you discover what it looks like for you to be with Jesus in community and on mission and live the life that God made you for. We do Rooted a couple times a year and our first 10-week round of Rooted is launching on February the 18th. It's our first round of 2024 and so you can sign up for that starting today. You can go out there to the welcome desk in the lobby or you can just scan that QR code on the seat right in front of you. I'd encourage you to sign up. Man, if you've been hanging around for a little while but you haven't gotten deeply integrated and you're ready to say yes, this is the year I'm really gonna get to know people here, get plugged in and really start following Jesus in earnest, I'm ready to jump in, then Rooted is your best first step. I hope you'll sign up for that. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Um, If you gave financially at all to the work that God is doing here at Plainfield Christian Church over the last year, we have your giving statements available for you today in the hub. If you don't go pick those up today, that's totally fine. We will mail them to you. But if you'd be willing, I'd love it if you'd swing by the hub right after this service and grab your giving statement because we would love the chance to just look you in the eyes and say thank you. Uh, We were blown away. This last week, our staff came together in this room for our staff chapel that we have every Wednesday, and we prayed over all of these giving statements. And what those giving statements show us is that there are well over a thousand households, not just people, well over a thousand households who gave financially, who said, yes, I believe enough in what God is doing here, and I wanna see the kingdom of heaven come in plain field on earth as it is in heaven, and I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is and let my heart follow my treasure. I wanna be a part of what God is doing here by giving financially. So thank you. That's amazing. We would love the chance to thank you, and we want the chance to thank God for how he has provided for us over this last year. So first thing's rooted. Second thing is, go get your giving statements. Third thing is, while you're in there grabbing your giving statements, I want you to meet a couple people as well because as a church, we actually try to kind of sort of practice what we preach every now and then. We don't want you to just live with Jesus in community on mission as an individual. We also want us as a church body to be living with Jesus in community and on mission. And one of the ways that we try to live on mission as a church is by just giving a bunch of money away to support other organizations around the world and here in our community that are doing God's work. And one of our favorite organizations to partner with is Camp Allendale. Uh, Many of you guys have had great memories and experiences at Camp Allendale over the years. We send hundreds of kids there every year. And it is amazing what a formative experience camp is in a person's life, whether it's a kid who goes or an adult who volunteers. So many times I get to sit over a cup of coffee with somebody or back in my office and just say, tell me your story. And I can't tell you how many times their story starts with, well, I started following Jesus when I was at camp. And it's amazing what an experience 
experience that is. And, and this is a big year in the life of Camp Allendale. They're in a leadership transition right now. Randy, who has served as the director for many, many years, is transitioning out, and they have a new director named Max who's transitioning in, and they're overlapping this year. And both of those guys are here with us today. They're in the room right now, and they will be in the hub after the service. And I'd encourage you, just swing by, and would you tell Randy thank you for the way that God has blessed and used his leadership to impact thousands for the kingdom. And would you tell Max just how glad we are that he's here and we're excited to continue to partner with them in the years to come. Three things, sign up for Rooted, get your giving statements, say hi to the Allendale folks. Now would you join me in prayer as we prepare to dive into God's word. Father in heaven, we believe that you are, you're really here. We're not just talking about you, but you're with us. And so we want to say thank you that even as we're about to hear how your son commands us to ask you for our daily bread, we want to say thank you for how you have already given us our daily bread. You have provided for us so abundantly over the last year. And so we thank you. And we know that you will continue to be faithful every day of this coming year. And so, Lord, we believe that you want to speak to us through your word and through your Holy Spirit. So give us ears willing to hear, hearts that are eager to obey and speak. We're listening. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen, amen. Um, to my knowledge, there's only one play in sports with an overtly religious name. And I think you know the play that I am talking about, right? It's time for the NFL playoffs. We are praying, of course, earnestly that the Colts will be better next year. But in lieu of that, imagine it's not unlikely that we'll see this scenario play out over the next couple of weeks. Imagine you've got one team that's down by four. They're on their own 40-yard line, three seconds left on the clock. That means that they've got one play left. They've got just one chance to win the game, and you know the play that they're going to call. They snap the ball, the quarterback drops back, the receivers take off at a dead sprint, and that quarterback just heaves the longest long ball he can muster. And what is that play called? Everybody knows whether you're Protestant, Catholic, or atheist. That is called what? A Hail Mary. Absolutely. Because the implication there is that a play like that under such dire circumstances, has such slim odds of success that only divine intervention could make it actually work, right? And of course, that Hail Mary is named after the Catholic prayer from Luke chapter one, where the angel shows up to the mother of Jesus and says, Hail Mary, full of grace. Now, come back with me to the football game. Let me ask you a question. Um, how come there are no Hail Mary passes in the middle of the game? How come there are no Hail Mary kickoff returns at the beginning of the game? How come there are no Hail Mary runs up the middle on third and three in the middle of the second quarter, right? No, no, no. The implication is that we save the religious plays. We save taking a Hail Mary shot at the end zone for the very end of the game after we've already tried everything else when we're desperate because, of course, for the first 99% of the game, I can rely on my own resources and my own game plan and my own training and my own play calling and my own personnel. And then and only then, when I've run out of all other options, then it's time to finally throw up a prayer. Do you see where I'm going with this? The point is this. Desperate people pray. Desperate people pray. Uh, you've heard the old saying before, there are no atheists in foxholes. 
It's because desperate people pray. People who are at war, people who just found out that their wife left them, people who found out that the diagnosis is cancer, people who don't know how they're going to make ends meet, people who just lost a parent or a child, those people, the desperate people, they know how to pray. They know how to throw up a Hail Mary. And here's the thing about those kinds of Hail Mary prayers of desperation. God loves that. It does not matter how long you have ignored him or been silent toward him. When you come to God for the very first time in a moment of desperation, he is so full of mercy that he absolutely loves that. And, and maybe for many of you, you could tell a story about how it was a, a moment of desperation that kick-started you on your spiritual journey and woke you up for your need to God. That's the story for a lot of us. But, but then most of the time, we, we know this from experience, don't we? Human nature kind of kicks in. And that, that once that desperation is over, we can really easily just kind of slide right back into our own game plan, running our own play, relying on our own smarts and strength to get the job done. But here's the truth that I just want to push down into your soul this morning. Desperate people pray. Desperate people pray. And whether or not you feel like you're in the fourth quarter with the clock ticking down, the truth of the matter is this morning, we're all desperate. Every single one of us. And there's some of you here today that you're in a hard season, and I say that, and you're like, yeah, because you feel desperate. But my guess is there's a lot of you that when you hear me say that, you're thinking, no, like, honestly, life's okay right now. Like, yeah, we're busy. Sure, there's some things that I wish I would do better, but the, the marriage is going all right. Kids are doing their thing. Like, I think we're okay. I don't really feel desperate. Um, I heard a guy a, a while ago talking about uh, flight training that the United States military did for, for young pilots back in the day. And, and, and they would use this little formula that they would teach the young pilots in flight school, and it was called the ODA loop. And they would tell these pilots to use this particular decision-making process as they're flying their planes. ODA, um, observe, decide, act. Over and over again, that's what you do. Number one, you observe. You look around and you use your five senses to determine where you are and what might need to happen. You observe, then you decide. You decide what it is that you are going to do, and then you act. You do the thing that you have decided to do, and you do that over and over again as you are flying the plane. Observe, decide, act. It's called the ODA loop, and that worked really well for pilots in about World War I when the planes are like made out of balsa wood covered in some paper and they have a glorified weed eater engine, right? Because the, the plane at that point is flying slow enough that you can use your five senses as a reliable navigational tool. Problem is, time goes on, technology gets better and better, the plane got faster and faster, and so the experience of flight became so disorienting that the pilot couldn't trust their own senses anymore. You could ask a military pilot this. There comes a point when you are so flying so fast that it can all become really confusing, and you actually can't even tell which way is up and which way is down, and if you're just relying on your five senses, you will fly that plane right into the side of a mountain. And so the ODA loop doesn't work anymore. And in flight school, they had to change from instructing pilots to use the ODA loop, observe, decide, act, and they had to add another step. They called it the OODA loop now. Observe, orient, decide, act. You still start with observing, like, yeah, use your five senses to the best of your ability, observe, but then you have to orient yourself. 
You have to look down at your gauges because you can't always trust your eyes. So you've got this instrument panel and you're moving so fast that those instruments are going to tell you exactly where you are, how fast you're going, and which way is up. And after the last service, a pilot came up to me and he said, yeah, and listen, every pilot knows that when what you observe and how you orient are in conflict, your senses and the instruments, you always trust the instruments. Observe, orient, decide, act. And the Lord's Prayer is like our instrument panel for the Christian life. This is how we orient ourselves in a world that is moving way too fast for us. And our own five senses and our frail minds sometimes can't tell which way is up. But Jesus orients us here because throughout this series, you know, we've been asking Jesus to teach us to pray just like Jesus' disciples did. So as we jump in, I just wanna slow down with you for a moment and let's orient ourselves And Jesus' response to his disciples was to teach them the Lord's Prayer. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. Would you pray this out loud with me? Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. So this is our OODA loop. This is how you orient yourself. That if you look around right now, and today your five senses are telling you that, yeah, I'm I'm doing fine. I think I'm self-sufficient. I'm kind of running the play that I designed in my game plan, and I think it's working okay. These gauges here, Jesus' goal is to remind us that whether or not you feel it, we are desperate. You are desperate for God, and desperate people pray. Now, if you're just looking around at your life and you don't feel all that desperate today, that's totally understandable. Why? Because we have more money than any generation in history, right? And so why, why would you need to pray this prayer? If this is our verse for today, verse 11, give us today our daily bread, why in the world would we need to do that? We don't feel the desperation to do that. Why ask God when you could just ask Siri? And why pray for daily bread when you can just DoorDash? And one of the subtle dangers of living in capitalist, prosperous, 21st century America is that money can do a lot of what prayer can do. And money can actually do it faster and easier. And we're not the only ones, though, who are in danger of succumbing to this kind of rugged individualism, this this lie of self-sufficiency. Put yourself for a moment in the shoes of a first century Jew. And imagine you're sitting there on the hillside and you're listening to Jesus deliver the Sermon on the Mount for the very first time and you just heard Jesus instruct the people to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And if you're a hardworking Jewish person hearing that, maybe you're thinking, hey, listen, buddy, I plowed that field. I planted those seeds. I harvested that wheat. I ground that grain. I kneaded that dough. I baked that loaf. That loaf of bread right there, my daily bread, I made that bread myself. The lie of self-sufficiency has been there ever since the very beginning. And, and I've gotten to see this. You, you've seen this too. But I think perhaps that the, the gauges, the OODA loop here of the Lord's Prayer is meant to snap us out of the myth of our own self-sufficiency and to remind us of the reality of the frailty 
of our existence, that whether or not you feel it, we are all desperate for God. I spent about 20 years working on the farm growing up. I loved farming. It's what I wanted to do with my life until God called me to become a preacher. And over that 20-year span working on the farm, I got to see this amazing progress in the world of agricultural technology. That by the time I was done working on the farm, we had tractors that would drive themselves via satellite far more accurately than I could ever drive them. We had thousands of acres of genetically engineered crops that were designed in a lab for maximum yield with minimum risk. We had top-level soil analysis. We had meticulous airborne field scouting reports. We had all kinds of things. And yet the reality of farming today is the same as the reality of farming in the first century, that every stinking summer it came down to the same thing. Only God can bring the rain. No matter how good our technology gets, only God can bring the rain. We are utterly dependent on him. Think of what we can do in our world today. We can put a man on the moon We can turn air travel into the safest form of transportation. We can create artificial intelligence. We can split the atom. But we can't even keep our families together. We can't break the bonds of addiction. We can't outrun death. And all the technology in the world can't solve the anxiety in our hearts, can it? There's not an app for that. And so Jesus says, you you are more desperate than you know. And when Jesus commands us to pray, give us today our daily bread, he's reminding us that we need to ask him. We have to ask him for our needs because we can't take care of ourselves. We are more desperate than we think we are, and desperate people pray. Um, Tim Keller was a pastor in New York City who tells a story of the time when he realized just how desperate he actually was. Keller writes this. He says, in the second part of my adult life, I discovered prayer. I had to, he says. In the fall of 1999, it became clear to me that I was barely scratching the surface of what the Bible commanded and promised regarding prayer. Then, he said, in the dark weeks in New York after 9-11, when our whole city sank into a kind of corporate clinical depression... For my family, the shadow was intensified as my wife, Kathy, struggled with the effects of Crohn's disease, and I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Keller says, at one point during all this, my wife urged me to do something that we'd never been able to muster the self-discipline to do regularly. She asked me to pray with her every night, every night. And she used an illustration that crystallized her feelings well. As we remember it, she said something like this. She said, imagine that you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill, every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget to take that pill? Would you just not get around to it some nights? No, 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 it would be so crucial to you that you would never forget, you would never miss. And his wife said, well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it. Desperate people pray, God, give me my daily bread. You have to give me what I need because I can't do it on my own. Um, As we've walked through the Lord's Prayer together, we've said it's really not a long, fancy, elaborate prayer. You don't have to worry about fancy words when you're praying because the Lord's Prayer is just a string of six really simple requests. And the first three requests are about God. God, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And the last three requests in the prayer are about us. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, and don't lead us into temptation. That's it. And this first request here, give us this day our daily bread, 
is just another way of Jesus telling us to ask for what we need each day. God, give me what I need today. Give me a roof over my head. Give me people that love me. Give me food on the table. Give me a body that can get me through. Whatever you need today, that is your daily bread. And once you realize that you can't manufacture your own daily bread, that you're desperate, then you'll pray. So let's say, hypothetically, that you're sitting here saying, okay, preacher, I'm willing to accept this reminder from Jesus that I am actually desperate, that I need God's help. I'm ready to pray for my daily bread. When you do, I'm praying for your daily bread will have three particular implications. The first one is this. Desperate people pray with gratitude. Desperate people pray with gratitude. In the New Testament, there was a guy named Paul who was writing a couple letters to his young protege named Timothy. Timothy was just starting out in ministry, and so Paul was giving him some advice. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is writing to Timothy about how to teach the rich people in his church. And Paul says this. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. That's all of us, by the way. You can't wriggle out from under that one, okay? So Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world. Command us. Not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Man, don't you want that? The life that is truly life. Like to be fully alive. And Paul says, if you really want to be fully alive, don't put your hope in wealth. Put your hope in God because everything good is from him. And we live a life of gratitude to him for what he has given us. Um, a guy named James in the New Testament, he was the half-brother of Jesus. He echoed that same thing. James says, every good and perfect gift. How many good and perfect gifts? Every. You guys awake? Okay. How many good and perfect gifts? Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. Every single good thing in your life, not just some good things, every good thing in your life is from your Father in heaven. So that means what? Like your spouse, your kids, your friends, your job, your money, your church, your clothes, your favorite pair of socks, a joke that makes you laugh, a Bible to read, hot coffee on a cold morning, radio station with 90s country music. Can I get an amen from God's people today? <laughs> every good and perfect gift is from above. And not just every good gift, but the very best gift of all. God displayed his radical generosity to us by sending his son, the second member of the Trinity, to step down off the throne of heaven and to come and to walk the dusty roads of this planet, taking on human flesh, enduring every kind of suffering that you have ever endured, living the life that you could not live, dying the death that you and I deserved, where he rose again to new life. And now, amazingly, Jesus offers us the chance to live that kind of fully alive life with him. That's the best act of generosity in history. It doesn't get any better. And so if he has saved us with the best act of generosity, won't he continue to provide for us by giving us good things along the way? That's the logic here, that we live a life of gratitude, trusting that God will give us what's good. And so in light of that truth, Paul goes on and he says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, godliness with contentment, remember that word, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich 
Confession, that applies to me more than I wish it did. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So he's saying if you don't live a life of gratitude, if you live a life of chasing your provision for yourself, it'll lead you the opposite direction. But a life of gratitude to God for every good thing will lead you to the life that is truly life, a life where you realize every good thing is from God, he gives me my daily bread, I'm gonna depend on him, and so it's in light of that that Paul can make this incredible statement. In Philippians chapter four, Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in how many situations? Any and every situation. Holy smoke, can you say that today? Any and every situation. Can you look at this season of life and say, you know what, it's not perfect, but I have learned the secret of being content. To live a life of of gratitude because you know you're desperate and that God has given you your daily bread, every good thing, just, just what you need. Can you imagine what a witness to the world this would be? If you and I, who live in this age of aggressive overconsumption, if we could be people of radical gratitude, say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you for every little good thing. If we lived lives of deep-seated contentment, saying, you know what, I I have what I need. It's all from him. God, give give me my daily bread. Not give me my daily cake. Not give me my daily cookies. Not give me my daily pie and ice cream, but God, just give me what I need. Give me, give me my daily bread today. Desperate people pray with gratitude. When I think of that, I, I think of the story of George Mueller. George Mueller was a pastor in Great Britain in the 1800s. He lived this incredible life. And as a pastor, he also helped run an orphanage where during his ministry, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. And throughout his life, George Mueller kept a meticulous journal. And in his journal one time, he wrote that his primary goal was not actually caring for orphans. Instead, George Mueller said that his primary goal was to use his orphanage as a witness to the provision and the glory of God. And to do that, prayer was his plan. Never once did George Mueller raise funds. Never once did he ask for money. When the orphanage had a need, he just prayed and God provided. And as you read his life story, there's these amazing stories of answers to prayer. Like one morning, there was no milk in the orphanage for the children's breakfast. And so George Mueller prayed. And what do you think happened? The axle of a milk wagon hit a street corner outside and broke. And the guy who was delivering it all didn't want all the milk to spoil, brings a whole load of milk inside and donates it to the orphanage right then. Another time, the orphanage got 28 new orphans that they weren't expecting. They had no plates to feed them on. George Mueller didn't know what to do, so he started to pray, and a woman knocks on the door. She's moving. She has to downsize. Here's a donation. Do you want to take some of my old stuff? They open up the box, and what do they find? 28 forks, 28 spoons, 28 knives, 28 bowls, 28 plates. Another time, um, there's another morning, all the children in the orphanage, they got up, they got dressed, they got ready for school, but again, the orphanage ran out of food. They didn't have anything to feed these kids for breakfast, but George Mueller was so confident that God would provide their daily bread that he had all 300 children come sit down at the breakfast table anyway, empty plates in front of them. Have you ever sat at a table with kids who are waiting for their food and are hungry? Like, not a fun experience, right? But George Mueller did it because he's confident God would provide, and he prayed, and lo and behold, a knock came on the door. And it was a local baker saying, somehow I woke up in the middle of the night, and I thought you guys might need some bread, so I baked three batches in the middle of the night. Here you go. An amazing life of answered prayer, relying on God for daily bread. And then after that, 
It was a life of gratitude. You might have heard this verse before. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter four. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in, in some situations when you feel like throwing a Hail Mary, so that's what he said, is it? No, he says, but in how many situations? Every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Like, ask God for your daily bread, he'll give it, but then, don't miss this phrase. He says, with thanksgiving, trust God and provide, and when he does, we live a life of gratitude in response. That's what George Mueller did, and I told you he kept a meticulous journal and, and every year when they sent out the report from the orphanage to their supporters, they didn't tell them what needs they currently had. They just told them all the ways that God had provided over the previous year. And in George Mueller's journal, he recorded over 50,000 specific instances where God had answered their prayers over the course of his ministry. That's more than one every single day. He lived a life of gratitude for daily bread. Desperate people pray with gratitude. Here's the second thing, though. Desperate people pray with trust. Desperate people pray with trust. Um, can I be honest? Praying for daily bread is not what I would prefer. I would prefer to pray, our Father in heaven, uh, give us this day our daily bread and also give me tomorrow's bread. Could you just give me a few weeks worth of bread? Lord, if you could just provide a lifetime supply of bread, that would be awesome. That way I can have the confidence of knowing that I'm well taken care of in the here and now. But Jesus says, no, no, no. You pray for daily bread. Um, for some of you, maybe that reminds you of a story from the Old Testament about when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and he does these amazing miraculous deeds to save them and then they're wandering around in the wilderness and they get hungry and they start to complain and they start to doubt God. The people had seen the amazing things God did to save them but then for some reason they doubted that he could continue to provide for them. Does that sound familiar to anybody? But God, in his mercy, in Exodus chapter 16, started sending manna from heaven. It was these little flakes of bread that would fall out of the sky and land on the ground every morning. So every morning, the people would go up, and they'd collect enough manna for the day, enough bread to feed their family. But here's the thing. You could only collect enough for one day. God had divinely orchestrated it that if you took too much, if you tried to keep a little for leftover, it would rot. It would spoil. It wouldn't keep. So you just had to wake up every day, and you had to trust that God's going to show up today. And you had to trust that God's going to show up again tomorrow. And you have to trust that God's going to show up again the day after that. Desperate people pray with trust. Now, when we pray for daily bread with trust, um, in my mind at least, the opposite of trust is worry, right? And, and, and all of us worry. Worry is a natural human thing. We've, we've mentioned this before that a while back, the New York Times reported that scientists working on the Human Genome Project have identified what they call the worry gene. I, I'm not making this up. It is gene SLC684 on chromosome 17Q12. And, and the people, they say, who have the short version of this gene are actually more prone to a particular kind of anxiety and fear. They're more prone to worry. And right now, some of you are worried that you have the short version of that gene, right? Because we worry about all kinds of things, don't we? Like, walk, walk through the hypothetical day with me. It's early in the morning hours, still dark outside, kind of a rainy morning, so the alarm clock goes off, and, and you hit snooze because you're sleepy, and then you hit snooze again because you're really only half conscious, and you hit snooze again, and then all of a sudden you jolt awake, and you realize that you are late, and so how do you start your day? You start your day by worrying, 
Am I going to be late for work? What about traffic? And so you sprint to the bathroom and you look in the mirror and you worry. There seem to be more wrinkles there than there were yesterday. Is that spot going to be cancer? And you run downstairs and you're in a hurry and so you let the kids eat whatever they want for breakfast and you pour some milk on their magic fruity chocolatey sugar bombs and then you start to worry. Like this cereal appears to be magically delicious but I don't think it's magically nutritious. Did I just give my kids cancer? And you start to worry. As you get the kids ready for school, you realize your son forgot to do his homework again. And so then you worry about him. What if he never gets into college? What if 30 years from now he's still playing video games in my basement? <laughs> and you drop your kids off at school and you worry about them some more. What if my kids don't get good grades? What if they don't find good friends and they fall in with the wrong crowd at school? And then you go to work and you worry about work and you think, am I really spending my life on this job? Is this a waste of time? Is there a better career out there for me that I'm missing? Am I going to make enough money? What does my boss think of me? What do my coworkers really think of me? And so you're tired of worrying about work and when you get home from work, you decide that you're gonna pull up Instagram to unwind because that makes everything better. <laughs> And so you scroll past everybody else's perfect houses and perfect kids and perfect marriages and perfect families and perfect vacations. And what do you do? You worry. Am I a failure as a parent? Is my life a joke? Am I doing all of this wrong? And so to get away from that kind of worry, you decide you're going to get up and you're going to go for a walk. And as you go for a walk, all of a sudden you feel that pain in your shoulder again, don't you? And so you start to worry. Am I going to need surgery for that? Can we even afford that? Who's going to take care of the kids if I can't move my arm? And so you go home and, and you hop on WebInfo. MD and you try to self-diagnose. <laughs> and you find that one of two things has happened. Either you have pulled a muscle and you'll be fine next week, or you've contracted African hippopomitis poison frog fungal disease and you're on your deathbed. And so then you worry about that some more. And then when you finally get the kids in bed, you turn on the TV to try to calm your mind down a little bit. And you see stories of war and economic chaos and crime and a society in moral decay. And what do you do? You worry. What kind of a world are our grandchildren going to live in? And so then you turn off the TV and you decide it's time to go to sleep. And you lay down in bed and you close your eyes. But you're still a little bit anxious. And at this point, you don't even really know what you're anxious about. And so just for fun, you start to worry some more. And you worry about your aging parents and you worry about flying and you worry about politics and you worry about the spiders that might be living under your bread and you worry about the friend who didn't text you back and that's just a normal Tuesday. <sighs> but Jesus says, you don't actually have to live like that. I don't think it's any coincidence that right after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts to talk about worry. This is what he says. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? 
for the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So God, give us this day. Give us this day our daily bread. But maybe you're still asking the question like, okay, but why does God want us to be desperate to need him each and every single day? Like, well, maybe it's because God wants to know you. Maybe it's because God's your father and that he wants to be with you. Maybe, maybe it's because if God gave you everything you would ever need right now, then you wouldn't need him. And that's not the kind of relationship God wants to have with you. Because imagine what that relationship would look like if God gave you everything you needed right now. I'm on, I, think of, I think of my boys. Uh, my three boys, we love to go fishing together. And so a couple years ago, we were fishing in the pond, and my middle son, Calvin, caught this crappie. And for some reason, on that particular day, he decided that he wanted to keep this crappie, take it home, and put it in the fish tank. And before I could say no, he had given the crappie a name. And you parents know this. Like, once the animal has a name, it's game over, right? And so he named it Kareem the crappie. And so, I don't know why. And, uh, and so for a couple of years, Kareem the crappie was a beloved member of our family living in our fish tank until a few months ago, Wesley, the youngest, came running in the room and he informed us, hey guys, look, Kareem is swimming at the top. <laughs> That's all she wrote, right? Um, but for that couple of years, we had a great time together. We loved Kareem. I don't know if Kareem loved us, but somehow it got to be my job to be Kareem's caretaker. And let me tell you how Kareem and I's relationship worked. I really loved Kareem because Kareem was a very spiritual fish. He would spend days on end fasting and praying <laughs> when I forgot to feed him. <laughs> and, uh, And when we would get ready to go out of town, um, I would go in and lovingly take care of Kareem by like just dumping a ton of fish food in his tank and throwing in a tablet or two for good measure and saying, there you go, buddy, you should be good for about a month. We'll see you when we get back. And is that the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you? No. God's not a God who's just not gonna dump everything on your lap like he's some kind of heavenly vending machine saying, all right, see you later, I'll talk to you when I get back. No, 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 he wants, you're not his pet. You're his child. And he wants you to come to him like my kids come to me and they come sit down at the table every stinking morning because they expect that there's gonna be food there. He wants you to come sit at his table with an empty plate in front of you, just trusting, saying, Father, I'm here again and I need daily bread. What have you got for me? Desperate people pray with gratitude and they pray with trust. Here's the third thing. We'll lay in the plane right here. Desperate people pray for each other. Desperate people pray for each other because you'll notice Jesus does not teach us to pray, give me my daily bread. He says, give us today our daily bread. This whole thing is a communal prayer. So when we pray this, man, if you have everything you need and you have a full pantry, then we are reminded of our brothers and sisters in this room right now who are in a hard season and they don't know how they're gonna make ends meet. And we're reminded of our brothers and sisters around the world who literally do not have their daily bread. And so we pray not just for ourselves, but for each other. 
Now, we've ended each of these series with a a, a practice for you to take home and to implement. We've talked about praying scripture. We've talked about practicing the presence of God. We've talked about circling something you want to see God do in your life. And this week, my challenge for you, the practice, is for you to fast from something. There's going to be a blog coming out about it later on in the week. Because right here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says a few things. He says, hey, when you give... When you pray, and then Jesus says, when you fast. Jesus assumes that his followers will fast from food. Not that his followers will like fast food, we've got that part down, but that they will fast from food. And and fasting is the spiritual discipline of giving up food to intensify prayer. And of course, it's normally food, but you can give up other things too. It's where you set aside a specified amount of time to give something up. It could be food or coffee or media or your, or your phone or sugar or something, not as a diet plan, but to create space in your life for God. And that means that as you're fasting, like every time you feel a hunger pain or every time you feel a craving for a snack or you drive by the billboard and it's like, I've never thought White Castle sounded good before, but it sounds amazing right now, you know? And, and every time you feel that urge to eat, instead of thinking, man, I'm so hungry, man, I have no energy, man, my head hurts, man, my breath smells, you think instead, man, let that launch me into prayer. And, And you are reminded of the people around the world who literally don't have enough to eat, and you pray that God will give them their daily bread, and you let that hunger launch you into a life of prayer for the people who have needs that need met here in our church community, and you let that hunger launch you into prayer for what God is doing in Garabo, and ask that God would meet the needs in that community, because we have this dream to see 10 churches planted in the next five years in Garabo in the Dominican Republic, and so we pray for God to give those church planters their daily need and, and, and everything that they need. And I'm, listen, if you have never tried fasting, I'm gonna challenge all of us this week to pick something. I'm not gonna tell you what, but give something up. It has to be something that'll hurt a little bit for a specified amount of time so that you can focus on praying for each other and the needs around us. If you've never fasted before, I'm not saying you'll enjoy it because I don't. I hate fasting, but almost nothing is more beneficial for your prayer life. And I want you all to know that we are led by a group of men and elders who are more committed to prayer and fasting than any other group of guys I've been around. And so we get to follow their lead and their example in this. We're gonna pray with gratitude. We're gonna pray with trust because we're desperate. And when we give something up this week, we're gonna remind us of how desperate we are for God to sustain us with our daily bread. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you, and you've given us everything we need. We've got a lot of things we want. We have things that we're gonna need, and we trust, Lord, that in the same way that you have not once failed us, You won't fail us in the days to come. And so, man, God, fill us with gratitude. Gratitude for your son. Gratitude for all of the good things that you have poured out so richly on our lives. And we want to show the world what it lives to live a life of gratitude and contentment. God, fill us with trust when we start to worry. Remind us of how big and how generous you are. And God, put a need on our hearts this week. Um, Somebody in our lives, the people in Garaba, whatever it is, God, that you want us to pray for, And then we're gonna trust you. And as we fast, even when we're weak, we're gonna let that springboard us to closer communion with you. I'm reminded, Lord, of of your son Jesus, who when he was in the desert, fasting and praying for 40 days, the enemy came to tempt him with some pieces of bread. And, And he said, no, 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 no. He quoted scripture. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let that be true of us this week, God. We love you. We're so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that all God's people said, Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.